Hey friends, welcome to Girls' Night. I'm Stephanie Mae Wilson, and I am so happy that you're here. Each week, I have a girlfriend over, and we talk through one of the biggest questions we have about our lives as women. We're talking about friendships and faith and relationships and self-confidence, about our calling in life and how to live every bit of our lives to the absolute full. Life is so much better and easier and absolutely more fun when we navigate it together as girlfriends, and I cannot wait to get started. Our guest for today's episode is Anne Bogle. Anne is an author, a podcaster, and the creator of the blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy. And she has a brand new book coming out in just a few weeks called Don't Overthink It, Make Easier Decisions, Stop Second Guessing, and Bring More Joy to Your Life. And everyone said amen, right? As a chronic overthinker myself, I am so grateful that she wrote this book. Well, in today's episode, I ask Anne a million questions all about overthinking why we do it, why it's so detrimental, and how we can finally stop. I have a feeling you guys are going to love this episode because I know I did. Anne really does talk us through how to make easier decisions, how to stop second-guessing ourselves, and she teaches us how to start quieting our minds and replacing our worry with peace. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I'm so excited about this one. But before we dive in, I wanted to make sure that you guys had heard my big news. So spring registration for my online course, Love Your Single Life, is officially open. That's right. You can go and register at loveyoursinglelife.com right now. Isn't that awesome? Guys, I'm so excited about this, and I really would love to have you join us. Teaching this course is my favorite part of my job, and it's because God has been doing the most incredible things in women's lives through it. I got an email a while back from an amazing woman named Amanda, and this is what she had to say about the course. She said, this course is the best thing that has ever happened to me. It's the reason I picked up and moved to a new city, the reason my relationship with the Lord is what it is today. I promise you, it is worth every single penny. Be prepared to have your world rocked. I love that. Amanda, thank you so much for your words, friend. They mean the world to me. Now, if this is the first time you're hearing about the course, let me catch you up. Love Your Single Life is the only digital course and study for Christian women that teaches a step-by-step system to savor enjoy, and truly make the most of your single life, all while setting yourself up for amazing relationships and marriage in the future. Here are just a few of the things we talk about in this four-week course. We talk about how to start really enjoying your single life and making the most of every moment. I'll teach you a powerful tool for building confidence, which also happens to be your dating secret sauce. We'll talk about how to find good quality men to date, even when it feels like you've run out of options. We'll talk about how to invest in your friendships, your relationship with God, your calling and your passions and in yourself. We'll talk about what to do with your sex drive while you're single because unfortunately it doesn't wait to show up until we're married, right? We'll talk about how to stay close to your girlfriends even when you're in different stages of life and that is just the beginning. Registration for the course only opens up twice a year and so to go along with today's theme, let's not overthink it. Guys, go ahead and sign up today. You can find out all about the course at loveyoursinglelife.com and that link will also be in our show notes. One other thing is that I know that some of you guys may be listening to this after February or after the registration deadline has passed, and that is totally fine. Head to the website anyway, put your name on the waiting list, and you will be the first to know next time the course opens back up. I cannot wait to share this with you. Okay, now, without any further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Anne. All right, friends, I am sitting here with my new friend, Anne Bogle, and I'm so excited for you to get to meet her. Anne, can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and I would love to hear a fun fact about you. Sure. Oh, well, I'm excited to share that fun fact because I love hearing the ones that your guests share on the show. It's my favorite part. And I do, I have to say, I if anyone's thinking, I don't know what I would say, Anne and I were just talking about this. I send the questions ahead of time, specifically that one, because the most seasoned interviewees will look like a deer in the headlights when they get that question. Like no one has a fun fact question just in their back pocket. So um, well, I think excited. that's the kind of thing that you could totally answer about someone else, but it's hard yes. to answer about yourself. Yes. Yes. I could give you a fun fact about everyone I know. And then <laughs> everyone's immediate reaction is I'm not fun. I have no fun fact. I'm like, that is not true. You just need to think through it a little bit. So, okay. Well, I think in your own head, like you're totally normal and not remarkable at all, but that's not the case when you're seeing everyone from the outside. We'll get, we're yes. talking about overthinking today. So we'll totally get into that. That's so um, good. I 
live in Louisville, Kentucky, right up the road from you in Nashville. Yes. Um, what do I do? I live in a really old house with my husband, four kids and crazy yellow lab. And I run a business that is devoted to helping people get more out of their reading lives. And I firmly believe that when you get more out of your reading life, you get more out of your life. So what we do is we have a blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy, that my favorite description comes from my friend Tish. She calls it a lifestyle blog for nerds. And I just latched onto that description. So we talk about books, but we talk about, you know, like great mascara and how to not get holes in your winter sweaters and stuff like that too. And then I have a podcast called What Should I Read Next? Where every week readers tell me three books they love, one book they don't and what they're reading now. And I recommend three titles they may enjoy reading next. And for a fun fact, this is a boring fun fact. So I have a backup, but I'm really tall. I don't think I'm that tall. I'm 5'9", and I grew up in a family of giants, so I never felt tall. But whenever I meet readers for the first time in person, the first thing they say to me 92% of the time is, oh my gosh, you're so tall. So I just want to get that out there. And that is so funny because I was actually just talking to another guest and that was her fun fact too. And I'm the same way. I'm exactly five nine and the same thing happens to me <laughs> because you have no way of knowing. Like if we have podcast, I think we all just sort of assume everyone's our own height. And yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Do you is your husband significantly taller than you? And or do you wear heels? Sometimes those are correlated, sometimes they're not. No, he's half an inch taller than me. But like all the men in my family were six three, six five. Yep. And the women are I'm I'm normal. So yep. I I forget that I tower over most people. But then I go out in the world and they'll say things like, Your voice doesn't make it sound like you're tall. You're like, what does a tall voice sound like? I know, like? I know, right? And I don't know if this goes along with being tall or not, but also I am a jump rope champion. Whoa. I I don't think that goes with being tall because while I am a dancer, I don't know if I'm coordinated enough to be a jump rope (laughs) champion and we're the same height. So, okay, you're going to need to tell us a little more about this. You have to be coordinated if you're a dancer. I think it goes like that. I think with jump roping, I just have all these limbs to trip over. Like that's what it seems like it should be. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you're really good at it. Wait, hold on, hold on. I mean- I am still a champion, right? Because it it is the present tense, but I didn't like do this last week. <laughs> when did you win this? Oh, like when I was young. That's awesome. <laughs> I still have the jump rope and I still have the medals. That's, and, and you will never get rid of them. That is amazing. I, I did not say that. Come on, come on. You've got to keep it. You've got to keep it. And anytime, anytime you have a moment, like if one of your kids is like, mom, you're not cool, which why would they ever say that? Because one, you are cool. And two, Kids aren't cool, so they don't know, but it's like evidence, like, look at this, or I don't want to go to bed. Well, you have to listen to me. Why? Because I'm a champion. What kind? (laughs) Jump rope. (laughs) You know, it has never occurred to me to play that card, but maybe I'll try it. Yeah, put that in your back pocket. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) To give them a nice laugh at bedtime. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Oh, man. Well, I'm so glad to know this. I'm so glad to know you, Anne. Um, And I have to tell you, I, growing up, I was a major reader. I was the kid who had tons of books in like, we'd go on vacation and half my suitcase would be filled with books, but somewhere around like middle school and high school and really college, I feel like that love of reading just totally disappeared. And I became the, I'm going to read enough to get by kind of reader. Um, I'm going to, you know, read enough to, to do this book report or do this presentation or whatever. But it's funny because over uh, new year's, I was with a bunch of my best friends in the mountains for a couple days. And we're sitting around, and this has never happened before. I've been friends with these people for decades. We're sitting around and they start talking about their book lists. Like, this is what I read this year. This is how many books I read this year. Did you like this one? You should read this one next. And I'm looking at them like, you guys read? I how I did not know that you guys were into reading. And and but they really were. Like my best friend, I, I never she never told me this, read like 40 books last year. And so I'm sitting there feeling a little bit left out <laughs> because. I, I didn't read 40 books last year. I, I read some, but I did not read 40. And so I think that something about that just sparked something in me. And I have been reading a ton since the new year. And I've been reading fiction, which I normally, like, I'm not normally a fiction person. And 
I've been tearing through books and like my husband Carl went to go play golf the other day and he came back and I'd finished half of a really thick book. And I know that I shouldn't be as like sixth grade surprised by that, like how thick the book was and how fast I read it. But I feel like this little part of me is kind of waking back up again. And so as I've been looking at all of your things, I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm going to hang out at the modern Mrs. Darcy. I want to be a book nerd too. So I'm an aspiring book nerd. We'll say that. That's so fun. I love it. And Stephanie, do you feel like Do you know how common a story that is, what you just said about being in sixth grade and just losing your love for reading in middle school and high school and then not reading in college except you had to? I've always been so ashamed of it. I'm like, I should be better than this. When it comes to anything in the reading life, it is never just you. But oh my goodness, that is such a common story. And it's not, it's not necessarily the norm for people to find their way back though. And I'm so excited that you did. Yeah. And I I love the image of you reading like half of your doorstop novel. That's really bringing me joy right now. Yes, totally. Yes. So it's it's like kind of this baby passion of mine all of a sudden in the last two weeks. And so I love getting to talk to you. I'm like, okay, this is like stoking the fire. I'm excited. I love it. Well, what were you reading? What was that big book? Okay. So um, this is cool. This is a fun shout out. So my husband has a marketing and branding company and he works with this really wonderful author who I guarantee you've heard of. Her name's Ruta Sepetis. Yeah. He works with her? He works with her, yes. That's so fun. Um, And actually, one of my best friends works with her as well. Um, She, like is her right-hand gal. And so I've known of Ruta for a long time, but I've never read any of her books. And she does historical fiction. But she she got me because um, I ended up going to her book launch party here in Nashville because my husband was going and my girlfriend Casey was going. Mm-hmm. And the, the latest book she just wrote is about Spain. And I love everything to do with Spain. And it was about a piece of Spanish history that I don't know anything about. And so I, I was like, you know what? I love this country so much. And I spent as much time there as possible. I need to know more about where they come from, like what they've been through. Uh And so I tore through that book and it was thick. And then I read another one of hers and, and I just, there, she captures pieces of history that people don't really know very much about. And I mean, she has done just the most beautiful work. Her, her most com or her most popular book is about um, Lithuania because she's from Lithuania. Mm -hmm her family is. And it's about all this stuff that happened to the Lithuanian people. They were all exiled from Lithuania and like nobody knows about it and no one was able to talk about it until the nineties. And so I, it's this, she's, I think been this, I'm going to get this detail wrong, but she's been like knighted by the people of Lithuania. Or I mean, something like that, like really recognized for the, by them because she's told this story that has just been buried in their lives forever and ever. And anyway, so she's amazing. And uh, I've been tearing through her books and it's it's fun that we have this little connection to her that my husband gets to work with her and stuff. So yeah, I'm, I've become a giant Ruta Sepetis fan and I'll make sure to link to her in the show notes. I love it. That's so exciting. I think that a lot of time is what readers need is they just need one book to either remind them what's so great about reading or to show them why why it's worth picking up a book. Yep. Or 40 of them, like yes. your girlfriend. Or 40. I know. I know. I'm trying to be like Kelsey when I grow up. Um, <laughs> and like you. I love it. So, um, and speaking of books, you just came out with a book that, I mean, like when I say this title, everyone's going to freak out because thank the Lord that you came up with this. So the book is called Don't Overthink It, Make Easier Decisions, Stop Second Guessing, and Bring More Joy to, joy to Your Life. And everyone's like, amen. <laughs> so Ian, <laughs> what, what made you want to write this book? Like, how did this topic come up for you? Well, I feel like in the books I've written, I've written the book I need, or even I've been blogging since 2011 now. And I used to think that like when I wrote blog posts, I would write what I had already figured out, or I would write what I knew. But instead I realized that I write to find out what I think. And overthinking is something, (laughs) it's funny to talk about thinking and overthinking in the same sentence. I realized that overthinking was something that flummoxed me and that I got pulled into. And it was a topic that I found myself discussing at a hundred girls nights and with friends and with my husband and thinking about in the middle of the night, because when you are an overthinker, it's a certain point you begin to overthink your own overthinking. And then you think, how did I get here? And how do I get out of it? And being a writer to, to figure out the answer to that, I started researching and then I started writing. Oh man, Uh, seriously, I can relate to that so much. Overthinking is something we all do, I I think, (laughs) Um, (laughs) and struggle with in like that middle of the night, just your mind is worrying and it's really hard to get it to quiet down. And, and, but, 
I don't know. I don't feel like we talk about this quite enough. You know, we talk about like meditation or contemplative prayer or quiet moments or unplugging from social media and things like that. But that's quite quieting down like other pieces of our lives, specifically social media or turning off the TV or things like that. Like that's quieting down the world, but the world in our heads, at least in my head, is very noisy. And so that's a whole other thing. So can you, you know, we know what overthinking feels like, but I would love, you know, as you've done this research and as you've been thinking about it so much, can you define overthinking for us? Like what is overthinking? And also why do we do it so often? Yes, that's a great question. Okay, so the answer to can I define it is yes and no. Because when I started writing this book, I thought, oh, we're just going to examine what overthinking is and see how to come out of it. And what really surprised me is when you start looking for instances of overthinking in your life and other people's lives, you would be shocked to find out the myriad ways it can manifest. It just went so much deeper and broader than I expected it to. But no matter what aspect or what iteration of overthinking we're talking about, there is always a common thread. And that is that these thoughts are repetitive, unhealthy, and unhelpful. Overthinking is a time when your brain is hard at work, but accomplishing nothing, where it's exhausting you and it's making you feel terrible. And we do it so often, I think because we're human, we exacerbate it by some of the things you just said, like uh, social media <laughs> does, does not help anyone's <laughs> overthinking. But we also do it because anything that you practice, you get good at. And so many of us have been overthinking for so long that we've gotten really <laughs> accomplished at doing it frequently. It's a habit. But what I discovered is that it it will get there, but it doesn't have to be that way. Like we got to become accomplished overthinkers by practicing so much, but you can practice to not do it too and come back down off that overthinking cliff. That is, I I feel like I need to sit down and think through this a little bit, maybe overthink it. The idea of we, we get good at what we practice. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, if you practice the piano, you're going to get better at playing the piano. If you practice reading, you're going to become a better reader. But I've never thought about it in that way of like, what am I practicing doing that's not a cool new hobby or that's not something that's beneficial? Like we're practicing all kinds of things that aren't necessarily good. And and so it makes sense that we'd become really good at them mm-hmm. and, and that we would need to practice something better. That I, mm-hmm. I don't know, that, that language just really got me. Yeah. Well, and the research is really interesting. In the book, I try to write as a relatable, accessible expert. I don't get super sciencey, but- it was really um, enlightening and encouraging me to discover that like with our thoughts, we strengthen the neural pathways that our brains rely on to think, um, but we we can strengthen healthier neural pathways. When I say healthier neural pathways, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that we can strengthen neural pathways that are more like the ones that we want, not the ones that we feel like we can't help but go down. Yes. That's something that I uh, talked about in counseling a lot um, a couple of years ago. You know, we have these patterns where it's like all of a sudden, you know, someone, I'm trying to think of an example, like someone uh, like looks at you the wrong way. And all of a sudden in your mind, you're thinking, why did that happen? Why did she do that? Um, she's <laughs> yes, probably yes, upset yes. with me. She probably doesn't want to be my friend anymore. And it's like, why did you go from like, she probably like her stomach felt weird or something. I mean, like it had nothing to do with you. How did you get from, she made a weird face to, she doesn't want to be my friend in, you know, 2.5 seconds. Yeah. And it's because that path in our brains has been like grooved. You know, it's like when you drive down a dirt road enough times, like you groove your, your tires kind of dig a path. And so that's what we talked about a lot was like, okay, when that happens, having to stop, stop yourself from going down that, you Mm -hmm. know, well-worn path and and Mm -hmm. say, okay, what is actually true here and start carving out a new path. And at first it's really uncomfortable and it's really unnatural, but then, you know, after some practice, then when someone makes a weird face, you're thinking she probably ate something weird. And if it has something to do with me, she'll tell me. And that's so much easier and more healthy. Yeah. Well, you use that example of like driving down grooves in the road. And something I really discovered in talking to a lot of my friends, in fact, one of the things that inspired me to write the book is I discovered that so many people talk about overthinking as something that's a, well, that's just the way it is kind of situation because you do always go down that road. So 
it's easy to think you always go down that road because that's the only one available to you because that is how the human mind works. But that's not the case. That's that's so that's the way your mind works, but it doesn't have to be the way it does. And you can I don't want to go too far with this like truck and the rut metaphor. I'm totally picturing these mountain roads we drove on in Colorado last summer yes. where we were like, we're so glad we're driving a rental because the transmission on this thing is going to be so shot by these <laughs> like deep grooved roads. But, yes. but just because that's what you're doing now doesn't mean you're doomed to do it forever. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Well, okay. Part of, you know, when we're overthinking something or when we're thinking about something a lot, I think part of it is because we sometimes, and I'm like, suffer from anxiety, like true present anxiety that Mm -hmm. really sticks around kind of no matter what's going on in my life. And so that's something I've had to, to deal with, but you know, sometimes our brains just come up with anything to worry about. And mine does that a lot. But sometimes we're thinking about something a lot because it's important and because we care about it. And so how do we, you know, as we're laying in bed at night, thinking and thinking and thinking, how do we know if we're overthinking a situation? Like, where's that line between intentional thought and like processing and overdoing it to the point where it's not helpful anymore? Those are great questions. First of all, I want to say we are talking about rerouting neural pathways. I'm saying way too much sciencey stuff for someone who has a bachelor's. Um, <laughs> no, I love a, it. I love a, it. A liberal arts degree. Okay. But I do want to say, like in the book, I share my story about how one of the things that really inspired and motivated me to find out like how the mind works was a conversation I had with my doctor not that long after 9-11. I had major issues with panic attacks after 9-11. Um, I was flying at the time. We ended up back in Germany. And thanks to a combination of external stressors and circumstance and a bee sting and a bad situation in a German ER, I came back to the United States and weeks later started having uh, panic attacks in the middle of the night that like the first time I thought I was dying, it was so terrifying. But I had a conversation with my doctor after that. And he's like, look, I, <laughs> I'm a family practitioner. This is not my area of expertise, but I know that your thoughts can be the enemy here. Like your, your mind can actively make the situation worse, or you can learn to make your thoughts your ally as you seek to overcome this. And this is not something that I live with at that level of intensity on an ongoing basis. But I do want to say, like, I'm sure your situation looks different, but I'm sorry you're dealing with that. And that is really hard. Um, And when we talk about getting control over your thoughts, I'm not saying like you can eradicate anxiety, but I do think that there are many things we can do that can like raise our satisfaction level or our contentment with how we are. So even if you may not overcome anxiety by the tips in this book, I think there are things you can do that will help. But that was my first motivation to really explore what kind of control we could have over our thoughts was that conversation with my doctor um, a few months after 9-11. And it was because it was, I mean, it felt like a matter of life or death at the time. It was really a big deal in my life. But then let's flash forward to laying awake in the middle of night, um, wondering if you're thinking or overthinking things. How how I define it in the book is that it's not overthinking if you're giving it the amount of thought you want to. In talking with a friend about the book, he was like, well, you know, there's some things you want to overthink in life. Like if you're going to get married or if you want to take a certain job. And I'd always say, no, 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 no. Like it's not overthinking if you're giving it the amount of thought you want to. And some decisions require a lot of conscious thought and we want to spend a lot of time on them and sometimes just don't. So I think overthinking, when we're overthinking, it doesn't feel like something we're choosing. It feels Mm -hmm. like something we can't escape. We do feel like we're engaging in these thoughts that are unhealthy and unhelpful. They're repetitive. Our brains are working really hard. Like a lot of people really relate to the visual of your mind on a hamster wheel, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're not accomplishing anything. It's exhausting and it makes you feel bad. If, If you are solving a problem, it's not overthinking if you're engaging in constructive thought. But if you're thinking and thinking and getting nowhere and it's making you feel worse and you're not accomplishing anything, then you're overthinking it. Yep. Yep. I love that. I love that distinction. And um, I'm so glad you said that about anxiety because when I first was noticing that this was something that I was struggling with, people would give me all kinds of hints or tips or something like, have Mm -hmm. you tried breathing? And 
And like, it made me a little bit angry because I'm like, yes, I've tried breathing. I'm, I'm pretty miserable over here. Of course, I've tried everything I can think of and it just wasn't getting better. And so I think that that's, that's how I knew that, that something like chemical was going on in my head was I, you know, I wasn't in the midst of a crazy season. I didn't have anything super stressful going on. I wasn't trying to make a big decision. No, everyone in my life was fine. And, but yet my brain was going crazy and, so I think that, the, you know, that's really how I knew that I might need a little bit more, like I might need some extra help. Um, and it's been, I'm so glad that I took that step because I'm like, it's just changed everything for me. But now like with some extra help and with some medicine that I, you know, really need things like this are so helpful now because <clears throat> I'm not like fighting an uphill battle. Now I feel like I'm on a pretty even playing field. And mm-hmm. now it's, you know, when my, when my mind starts getting busy, like last night I, I was laying in bed and all of a sudden I'm overthinking something that like should be fun and should be good. And has no, like, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about where I want to go on vacation mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm starting to like, okay, well, where are we going to go and what do we need to do? And, and, and I'm starting to overthink and I had to stop myself and say, Stephanie, this is great. This is going to be fine. This is going to be fun. We can think about this another day. This does not have to be solved today. Right now you need to go to bed. And I and I mm-hmm. had never been able to like carve a new path like that before. I before I just would spin and spin and spin and all of a sudden this random question of where are we going to go on a trip had become this disaster or something to be really afraid of. And so I I love this and I and I'm really grateful for that distinction that you know sometimes things like tips like this are so helpful in so many ways. But if you're finding that you are being swallowed up by your thoughts in a way that nothing is really helping, then at least for me, that's when I knew I needed to ask for a little bit extra help. Yeah. Ooh, swallowed up by your thoughts. That's a great way to put it. Mm. Um, so we know that overthinking is frustrating, but I know, you know, I know you've done so much research on the topic. How can overthinking have a negative impact on us and our lives? Like what what's at stake here if we just let our brains keep going and going and going? Oh, that's such a great question. Well, I think there's really two ways, uh, except I see, I, I think most of the research focuses on the first, um, but the second is also really important. So the research shows, and this goes back decades, that overthinking makes life harder, it hurts our relationships, and it may even contribute to mental disorders like depression, severe anxiety, and alcohol abuse. But the thing that doesn't get focused on as much is the opportunity cost of overthinking. But the more I look around, the more research I did, um, the more I explored the different ways we overthink. I mean, it honestly can feel endless, the possibilities for overthinking, is that it comes at such a high opportunity cost because our mental energy is not a limitless resource. We only have so much to spend and it matters how we choose to use that. I'm a huge Annie Dillard fan, um, and she she wrote in her her essay, The Writing Life, that how we spend our days is how we spend our lives, and what we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. And when we spend our time overthinking, that is what we're doing with our life. But that's not what anybody wants to be doing with their life. So. When we're overthinking, you're not doing all the things that really matter to you. You're spending more time unhappy and unproductive and feeling stuck like you can't escape your own head. And I mean, that's that's too big a price to pay. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. I, I don't know if anyone else just sort of like, like, oh, like gut punch at that. You know, that's how we're spending our lives. If we're spending so much time overthinking, that's that's what we're doing with our lives. And yeah, nobody wants that. So one area where I know we do a lot of overthinking, and uh, I mean, this has been me for years, is our relationships. And sometimes that's in our friendships. Sometimes that's our romantic relationships or in our families or our relationships at work. What impact does overthinking have on our relationships specifically? Oh, it's not good on our relationships. And that's for two reasons. First of all, When it comes to our relationships, a lot of times this kind of overthinking manifests as worrying and worrying about your relationships, imagining all the ways they could go wrong or they're not working or what people really think about this. That cuts us off from people. It doesn't bring us closer together with them. But it also has that huge opportunity cost when when you're spending your time thinking about the relationship and not in an unhealthy way and not in the relationship. Mm -hmm. It just takes you further away from the person. But then 
Overthinking also impacts our relationships potentially in another way. And that's if you're talking about all your overthinking with your friends and family, it's unfortunate that you may be doing it because you feel like you need help. And yet that turns a lot of people away. And I know that's sad. And yet that is what the research shows that we we distance ourselves from others, not just in our own minds, but because being around someone who is endlessly sharing their overthinking out loud is exhausting for a lot of people. And it draws them away when what you want to do is pull them closer. If, if you are having these issues, there, there are other ways to share your thoughts with others that are so much more productive and that can bring you closer to other people instead of putting more space between you. That's, oh man, I feel like I can think of so many examples of where that's been true for me. That's one of one of the ways that I started really noticing my anxiety was was in my friendships because really my friendships are so deeply and forever important to me. And I and so I think when something's really important to you, it's probably common that you're afraid of losing it. And so I would find myself just endlessly analyzing the things that I said or didn't say or how I said it, worried that all of a sudden I was going to ruin this relationship. And so really that's one of the things that was a bit of a catalyst for me to to go to therapy to be like, okay, this is this is getting in the way of my relationships. Why am I overthinking this so much? And how do I stop? And part of it was clinical anxiety. And part of it was that I'd carved this path for so many years of like, if I do something even the tiniest bit wrong, then I'm going to lose this relationship. But in the process, you know, you can only go to someone a couple times and say, Hey, I'm so sorry if I said that the wrong way, or are we okay? The hundredth time you say, are we okay? They start to get a little bit mad. <laughs> and so it really is, you know, you're trying to to be closer to people, but it ends up having the opposite effect. And so for me, I had to just step back and go, okay, something's off here. Something is not right here. How do I have a, a firmer grasp on, like, how do I have more grace with myself? And how do I give my friends the benefit of the doubt that the tiniest thing is not going to make someone angry at me to the point of ending a friendship? And But I think we do this in our relationships too, and with our families and at work, like we want things to be good and we want to do our best. And so when we feel like we've fallen short in any way, the beating up we can do of ourselves is just brutal and it makes the whole thing worse. That's so true. And also you said something really interesting. You said that you noticed that it was having a negative impact on your relationships. And that's such an important step. I know it sounds so simple, but when we don't perceive the ways that overthinking has a hold on us, like if you're blind to a problem, you can't do anything about it. You don't know that there's anything to be done. And really the first step to overcome overthinking is to notice the places where it's present in your life. So hats off to you for doing that and then taking the further step to actually do something about it. Well, it's, I mean, it's helped so much. It's helped so much. Um, and I just feel like my brain is such a more peaceful place to be. And I mean, I'm, I'm in there all the time. And so it's really nice when, when it's <laughs> more restful. So I'm, I'm so glad that I took that step. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. As many of you know, I recently wrote a book, and while it was the most rewarding project of my career so far, it also came with a lot of hard work and long nights. And sometimes when things started to feel a little bit overwhelming, I needed to get a few things off my chest so I could clear my mind and keep the writing process flowing. And the thing that helped me so much to sort through those feelings was therapy. Now tell me if any of this sounds familiar. Maybe you're going through something really hard right now, a big loss or a gigantic life transition. Maybe you frequently feel anxious, depressed, overwhelmed, or just generally discouraged. Maybe you really, really, really want your life circumstances to change, but you don't know how to actually change them. Or maybe you're feeling stuck as you try to work through your past, navigate your present, or figure out your future. Friend, if you can relate to any of this, you're not alone. I've been there and therapy has been the thing that has helped me more than anything else with all of this. In the last 10 years or so, I've learned that strength isn't proving I can do it on my own. It's knowing that I don't have to. I'm at my strongest when I have a full support system around me and an essential part of my support system is therapy. Therapy can be absolutely life-changing, 
That is, if you can afford it and find a therapist you like and trust. But of course, this is easier said than done. And that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with this week's podcast sponsor. Our sponsor for today's episode is BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the easiest and most affordable way I've ever found to find a great therapist. It's entirely online and super easy to sign up. You can get started right away. And if you don't love the counselor you're paired with, switching is easy and it's free. If you're going through something hard in your relationships, or if you're in a funk you just can't shake, if you've been feeling anxious or depressed lately, or if you're feeling stressed and you need help balancing your everyday life and schedule, BetterHelp is an incredible resource for you. And I'm so thankful that they've given me a promo code that I can share with you to make it even easier to get started. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash friendship today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash friendship. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Friends, springtime is finally here, but that also means allergy season is in full swing. I have always struggled with allergies and I don't know about you, but I am especially allergic to cats. More on that in a second. Well, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. The time that I use Claritin the absolute most is when I'm at my parents' house, my childhood home. They have this absolutely beautiful cat that they love and I like, except for the fact that he sheds so much. So that means that I'm basically sneezing from the second I arrive home to the second I leave, unless I take Claritin. My dad has even started having it ready for me right when I walk in the door. Are you ready to live life as though you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Claritin, thank you so much for sponsoring our girls' night. We love having you. So we know that overthinking is not good, both from just experiencing it in our lives, but knowing that it really can take a toll on our lives and our health and our relationships. So, Anne, how do we stop doing this? How do we stop overthinking and stop second-guessing ourselves? I would love to hear any strategies you can share with us. Oh, sure. Okay. That is such a great question. Let me share a few that have really helped me. First of all, before I got into the project of researching and writing this book. I was completely blind to the strong tie between perfectionism and overthinking. So I've kind of jokingly, but mostly not called myself a recovering perfectionist for years, but I did not realize at all that that was tired to overthinking. But what happens is if you are inclined towards perfectionism and you're constantly monitoring your actions against this internal standard of like capital R right. Like you want to do everything right. You want everything to be the best. You want to maximize every situation. Oh, your poor brain. That's a lot for it to handle. And it also makes you critical and judgmental. A a friend of mine um, reviewed this book very, very early in the process. And she said, you know what? I did not identify with your like with being an overthinker when I picked up the book. I was reading it because you asked me to and I thought it would be interesting. But then I went to Target and I tried to buy dish soap and I just finished the chapter on perfectionism. And I was like, oh, good grief. I just did not realize before how miserable this made me and how much mental energy I spend on like on dish soap before. So just like we were saying, you noticed your issue with your friends. Like if you don't 
notice what is going on in your life, then you can't do anything about it. But if you think about perfectionism and overthinking and then take a look around your life, you may be really surprised at what you see. And it could be kind of mortifying, but the first step is to watch what you're doing because it's only when you see the issue that you can do something about it. Also, what I didn't realize is that second guessing is strongly tied to perfectionism and therefore tied to overthinking. So a lot of times when we're regretting a decision, we're we're wishing we'd done something different or we're wondering if we did the right thing. We're comparing ourselves to that standard of, did I do it right? Did I do it best? And just being able to perceive that's, that's the issue um, has brought so much freedom to me and other people, which is really helpful. Yeah. Okay. The next thing that's been really helpful for me, and this is going to sound silly, but I realized in the course of writing this book, how many times I would think and think and think like totally overthinking a decision because I would be trying to get to an answer I loved and not an answer that was right. Like in some situations, you're just not going to like the answer, but that doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. If you have ever laid awake. This is a silly example, but I hope it's relatable. If you've ever laid awake in the middle of the night going, should I get up to go to the bathroom? Should I get up to go? To, I should probably get up to, should I get up to, It'll maybe it'll be fine. No, maybe I should get up to go to the bathroom. You don't want to get up. Like, you know what you need to do. You just don't want to do it. So if you see like the right answer might be something you don't like and you can just do it anyway and move on with your life. That can be really freeing. I mean, I don't want to talk about like the bathroom, but Stephanie, we're going to talk about it. Have you ever done that? Oh, like every day. Every day. Yeah. And like, you know, I like maybe I'll, I'll go just in case or no, it'll like, it'll wake me up. You know, if I, if I get up, it'll like, I'll, I'll be totally awake if I get up, but I'm pretty awake because I'm laying there thinking about being awake because I have to go to the bathroom. When, if you just go the first time, you could be back asleep by then. (laughs) Okay. Here's something else you can do to minimize overthinking. You, if you have situations that come up in your life repeatedly, you can decide for once, Hey, when the situation arises, this is what I'm going to do. It's like, I was going to say it's like programming software, but I don't know anything about software. Forget I said that. But you can, you can make a rule for yourself that says, Hey, if I wake up in the middle of the night and wonder if I need to go to the bathroom, I need to go to the bathroom. Maybe, maybe one time out of 10, I don't, but it would be easier forever just to decide if this happens, that is what I'll do. Um, The cover of the book has a grocery cart full of flowers on it. And that comes from a story in the book. I used to torture myself going to Trader Joe's. Like I love their cheap bouquets they have Uh because they're, you know, they're beautiful and they're inexpensive and fresh flowers just make everything better. This is, (laughs) there's probably science there, but this is my personal rule to live by. And every time I went to Trader Joe's, I'd be like, oh my gosh, I don't need to spend the five bucks. But what if I did? That would be nice. I don't really need them. And I finally decided I make myself crazy every time I go to Trader Joe's. Like if you haven't been, it's been over a week and your flowers in the backyard aren't in bloom, just buy a $4 bouquet. Just do it. Don't even think about it. Put it in your cart. Or it could be a simpler way. Like on on Monday nights, you have pasta for dinner, you know, just like streamline decisions so you can save that mental energy for things that matter more to you. Something else that I learned, and this is going to sound kind of esoteric, but if you can wrap your brain around it, it's so, so life-changing. That is the concept of values-driven decision-making, which sounds so serious, but (laughs) here's what I mean. I've learned to like, when I'm facing a, a decision, Sometimes the decision isn't really about what it seems like the decision is about. Like, uh, this is kind of a somber example. I was debating last weekend, um, hey, there's a family funeral at three o'clock. For for someone I haven't seen in over 10 years, I haven't seen that branch of the family in ages. They're probably not expecting me to be there. I don't really have to go. I forgot it was happening. I'm still wearing my running clothes. Do I have time to take a shower? And I could just remind my, instead of agonizing about it, because I don't like to leave the house on cold, rainy days. This was also a factor. (laughs) I know this about myself. Um, I I could just remind myself like, hey, I have decided that it is important to me to show up for family events as far as it is within my power. Mm. If like my kid had had a theater performance that afternoon, I would have gone to that probably for the same reason. But I was available. I could do it. I didn't want to leave the house, but that wasn't the value here. The value wasn't staying home to be warm and cozy. Um, The value was showing up for family. 
And I know a funeral sounds like a serious example, but that's also true for things like the library had a reopening on a day that turned out to be really, really busy, both work-wise and professional-wise. They didn't need me at the library. They wouldn't know I was there, like there were going to be so many people there, but I could tell myself, like, is this important for me to go? Like, I value the library. I value books in the community. Funding was being cut at the time and having an extra body there, like, would actually matter. And that's showing up is a value I have. And just using that to make decisions um, can be so helpful. I love that. And, you know, I've written about this several times because this was such a game changer for me. I have had a similar moment when it comes to, to celebrations for friends. It's, this sounds horrible, but so it was a couple years ago and one of my- Wait, I just said I didn't like to leave the house. So it, it can't sound that Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really for the same reason. Um, so uh, one of my girlfriends, her birthday is in December and a couple years ago. And so, so usually I'm not in town for her birthday because it's right as we're about to leave for Christmas, which stinks. And I hate that. But this one year I had just had a really long day. I was starting to get sick, but not like I wasn't sick yet, but I just was feeling like a little rundown. I think it was snowing outside. And also, I mean, I didn't know who was going to be there other than her. And I just kind of didn't want to go. And so I started giving myself an out in my head thinking like, well, she won't even really notice if I'm there or it won't really make a difference or, um, she'll understand or, I mean, yeah, really, she just won't even notice. It's, there are going to be so many people there. It won't matter. And I went back and forth overthinking this decision for hours, just back and forth and back and forth, just like really fretting about this. And finally I decided to go. And I am so glad I did because first of all, She didn't invite like the whole city. She invited her favorite people. And when one of your favorite people, like one of your closest people doesn't show up, you notice. I didn't end up sitting, you know, at the end of the table far away from her. I ended up sitting right next to her. I got to spend the whole evening with her. And I got to meet some wonderful new friends that I never would have met if I didn't show up. And so I think about that a lot. You know, when there are opportunities, when someone invites you to something, It's funny because we say we want deeper friendships, we want closer community, but when we get the opportunity to actually form that deeper community, we say no because it's cold or because we're uncomfortable or because we're nervous or because we'd rather just stay cozy in our sweatpants at home. And I'm totally one of those people. But that day I had to make a decision that really has has stuck with me in the same way that you're saying, like showing up for my friends is, is a major value of mine. And so even when I don't want to, especially when I don't want to, that's, you know, instead of going back and forth on that decision over and over and over again, I've decided if I can, I'm going to show up. And I mean, I've never regretted it one time and I've never regretted the time I've saved by not overthinking the decision one time either. Right, right, right. And that's such a good example because it really shows how well, you made the decision once and it's consistent with the way you want to live your life and then you can just do it. And it also shows that like you're focusing on what really matters. Because sometimes we'll look, we'll look at, do we want to do the thing or do we not want to do the thing? And we'll think that it's a question of like, what do we really want to do on our Thursday night? Like we will think it's a scheduling concern and not a question of like where our priorities lie. But we can, when we can identify the question behind the question, it's so much easier to decide. Yep. We talked about showing up for events and that's a, that's a pretty significant commitment, but I've also found this values-driven decision-making can can help decide really little things. In the book, I tell the story about how I use the values-driven decision framework to decide to go to Scotland, which is a big decision, right? Yeah. But especially because I really dislike flying, going back to that 9-11 anxiety thing. But, But so we decided to go to Scotland. But one of the regrets I have about this trip to Scotland is that I didn't get like a $3 Bakewell tart in this like little cafe we stopped at in a small town in Scotland for lunch. And it took me, like, I knew that bothered me and it took me a long time to articulate why it did. So we're talking about a $3 dessert, right? We're not talking about a huge thing at all. But I remember at the time when I was thinking about it, well, first of all, I saw it in the case and I thought, oh, I saw that on the Great British Baking Show. I was just going to ask. I've never seen one in person. I was so excited to see it. I was just going to ask. I was like, 
either. I mean, you could be the kind of person who just knows what a Bakewell tart is. I know what a Bakewell tart is because I've watched every episode of the Great British Baking Show. That's the only reason I know. Seriously, my husband and I have talked about it. We're like, we need to, we, at some point, we're going to try to get to England and eat our way through because (laughs) I want to know what frangipan tastes like. I don't know what frangipan tastes like, but I would like to find out. And... Yes. That's I'm it was so such fun. a delight seeing all the desserts I recognized in the different cases. Oh, it was great. But I very rarely got them because I another value of mine is eating healthy and I like I know what that means for me in eating low sugar. And one of the reasons is because I know when I eat junk, I feel bad. And when I feel poorly, like that's a direct anxiety trigger. So I really value eating healthy food. So when I saw that Bakewell tart in the case, I thought I value eating healthy food, so I'm not going to get that. But Stephanie, that was totally the wrong lens. I was in Scotland and I should have I should have paid my $3 and had a bite of the Bakewell tart. I did not have to eat the whole thing. Oh. I shouldn't have had a, I mean, I didn't have to eat tons of sugar. I just could have had a taste and it would have been totally worth it because I was viewing, I was in Scotland and yeah, I was viewing it through the lens of health, which wasn't foolish, but I forgot that I was also... But I also had these values of trying new things and having adventures and living out my dreams of tasting everything on the British baking show. That is the value that should have driven that decision. And oh my gosh, I told my kids like, oh, we saw a Bakewell tart. And they were like, what did it taste like? Oh, Uh, such a failure. (laughs) Like a little thing, a little thing, but I hope it helps frame for people that the question in front of you like what it what it seems the question is about is not always what it's about. And when we can identify the value underlying the decision, suddenly the answer can become crystal clear. Like that wasn't about dessert. That was about experience. Yes. Oh, that's... And that can apply no matter where you are geographically. Yes. Oh man, I really, that's so... that's just, that's really, really helpful. That's really helpful because the rules change. They're not exactly the same. The rules we set for ourselves, the guidelines to try to just make our lives a little bit easier, but they're different in different places. Like saying on a Monday night, like, do I need a piece of cake? Maybe not, but if it's Monday night and, you know, I'm celebrating something at work or it's a birthday or it's, or, you know, it's just one of those days where you're like, we just need to celebrate. Like it's been dreary forever. We need, you know, celebration is also a major value of mine. So if it's just a normal Monday, like, you know, maybe don't need a piece of chocolate cake. But if it's, if, if these other values come into play, then the result's different and, and we can change the rules a little bit for ourselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And again, no one is telling anybody they need to eat cake or Bakewell tarts. But if the question is, do we or don't we need a celebration? Like, and the answer is yes, then figure out a way to have that celebration. Like that, that is what you would need to know in that situation. And not everything's black and white. Like that's a really good reminder that to get the Bakewell tart, you don't have to eat the whole thing or you don't have to eat four of them. Like you could eat half of one or a quarter of one. And, and that accomplishes a couple of things at once. And so I think that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I think we get so caught up in so many decisions, especially when we're talking about like, a job or a big life transition, some of them can't be undone. Like once you marry someone, you have married someone. And that's one that you really want to think about upfront. But, you know, if you apply for a new job and take a new job and it just isn't what you thought or it isn't, doesn't turn out to be the right fit, you can absolutely make a new decision. It's not, things aren't as black and white usually as we, as we make them to be. And so if, if part of what you're doing is laying up in the middle of the night, worrying about something like that's something that's really helped me is reminding myself, I can, if I make this decision and it doesn't turn out to be what I'm hoping it's going to be, then I can do something else. And the cool thing is that, you know, looking back, all those many decisions that sometimes felt like a mistake end up being the thing that led me to something that was even better. And I just had to keep moving forward. Yes, because you did it and you learned from it. So a lot of times when we get stuck in life, because um, analysis paralysis obviously is a result of in further fuel to overthinking, I found that embracing an attitude of experimentation can unlock our brains and help us move forward. Just just like you. Well, what you said was you, you tried something and maybe it didn't work out, but it let you move forward. If you can embrace the mindset that 
your your decision, like whatever happens next, it's just data. Like you're just learning. You don't have to get it right, but you have to do something so you can learn and adapt accordingly. And I found that to be so freeing. Just try something, see what happens and take it from there. You can pivot, but first you got to find out what's going to happen next. I love that. I remember hearing someone say that probably a year and a half ago, and they were talking about creativity and um, work and entrepreneurship and um, all kind of, you know, stepping into the thing that you feel like you were created to do in the world and how scary that can be. And a couple people said it back to back. I was at a conference. One person said that one out of every 10 ideas that their company has is good, uh, which means the rest are not so great, but they don't find that out until they give it a try. And then the next person said something about how business and creativity and really making anything new in the world is just one giant experiment. And you, I mean, you really have to try before you know if it's going to work or not. And the freedom of hearing someone who was so successful and who had made so many wonderful things in the world to hear them say that one out of every 10 of those things was Mm -hmm. good and everything else was Mm -hmm. like not great was so freeing. And just like, since then, I feel like I've tried so many new things and not felt like if this doesn't work out or if this is the wrong step or if nobody likes this, I'm a failure or, um, every, like, you know, we're, we're going down. It's, it's <laughs> just that that wasn't the best thing. So let's try something else. And uh, just yeah. really that attitude of experimentation has set me free in so many ways, specifically at work, which has been really cool. It really lowers the pressure because perhaps ironically, when we when we are committed to getting the exact right outcome, we we can't we can't function under high pressure. But when you lower the stakes, you can make better decisions and you can find the freedom to move forward, like you were saying. Uh, you were talking about being in Scotland, and a couple of years ago, I had the chance to uh, go to Spain with my husband Carl. Um, I had studied abroad there, and I'd spent a lot of time there in high school and college, but I hadn't been back, and we'd never been together. And so I was so excited to show him my favorite city and introduce him to people I loved, and it felt like getting to bring him home in a whole new way. And you know, mm-hmm. we'd been married for a couple of years, but it, yeah, it was just this whole new home I got to bring him to. And our plan was we were going to be gone for two weeks, which was awesome. And the first week we were in Spain and the second weekend or second week we were in Portugal. And I didn't really have any hopes for Portugal, not because it's not great. I just didn't have as much of a personal connection to it. Uh And so we get to Spain and we, I mean, we had a great time and it was so special, but I did a lot of overthinking that week and a lot of like watching his face to see if he liked it as much as I did or like a lot of, uh, I had so much, so such high hopes for what it was like, what certain things were going to feel like that in some ways it wasn't as fun as I was hoping it would be because my expectations were so high and I put so much pressure on it. I had years of pressure on it. But then the next, the, our next stop was, um, Porto, a little town in Portugal. And it was magical. And we were great and we had so much fun. And it was so, it was so shockingly wonderful because I had no expectations for it. I I hadn't built it up so much. And it's not that it was better than, um, Sevilla where we were in Spain. I mean, I, I, Sevilla is my favorite place in the world, but it just wasn't quite as pressure filled. And so it was really amazing how much more, like a little bit more fun we were able to have because that all the expectation wasn't on there. And so I think that that like seeing those two weeks side by side, I think that that's going to be kind of my go-to for things in the future. If I can remember this lesson is just, let's just let it be what it is. You know, let's let Christmas be what it is. Let's let my birthday be what it is. Like it doesn't have to be the best day of my life. It can just be a a really good day or this can be Mm -hmm. just a really fun trip. It doesn't have to be Mm -hmm. the best thing ever. And I think it leaves so much more room for it to be surprisingly wonderful when we're not expecting it to be the best thing ever. How interesting that you had those two weeks back to back. It was, I mean, I I wish I could a little bit, I wish I could go back and, and redo that week in Spain and take some of the pressure off because I just think that together, I think, I mean, I don't even know if how, how Carl felt about it. Um, I don't know what it looked like through his eyes as much, but through my eyes, I was so freaked out about it that I didn't enjoy it as much as I wanted to. And that's such a bummer. It is. And it really goes to something that we say in my house all the time, kind of joking, but also really not, is that low expectations are the key to happiness. (laughs) I love it. 
I love it. Well, so, Anne, I want to ask you, you know, as we are, we've been talking about, you know, values-driven decision-making and like lowering your expectations a little bit and just all these different things we can do to make decisions. But when we're laying in bed at night and our minds are just overthinking like crazy and we're not trying to actually really make a decision, we're just worrying. Do you have any like strategies for us of, of, ways we can point our brains differently to maybe kind of carve a new carve a new path. Yes. I talk about this in the book a lot because sometimes it's not as easy as like attacking those thoughts head on. There's a great phrase I came upon from Dr. Henry Emmons who wrote a book called The Chemistry of Calm. He says when it comes to combating negative thoughts, what we resist tends to persist. And if we start like arguing with our our false thoughts, um, we only serve to empower them and make them stronger. Mm-hmm. So that's that's something that can be gone into in depth on the page, but but that is something to consider. And also, if you're lying awake in the middle of the night overthinking, I think a lot of times we evaluate that situation like in an isolated half hour interval, when really that's just one piece of a picture that started well years ago, but also when you woke up this morning? You know, like how, how did you go to bed? What were you thinking about this evening? What was your day like? What were you eating? Um, something that really surprised me that was both encouraging and also kind of, are you kidding me? Is that so much of our mental health is tied to how we care for our physical bodies. And when we're talking about something as big as overthinking, I, I wanted like deep, complicated solutions, but sometimes the answer is go to bed earlier and eat some vegetables. I mean, seriously, because I just discovered that the link between physical health and mental health is so, so strong. And a lot of psychologists have written and they're quoted in the book and said like, people blow this stuff off because they think, what could it really matter, but it matters a ton. And so I talk about things like the power of ritual and the book and the power of taking care of your physical body to really positively impact your mental health. Another thing you can do, depending on what you're overthinking, I found that a powerful way to give yourself grace and to help you see something from another angle is to, well, there's two things you can do. One, you can just consider the situation from a different perspective. So you're lying awake in the middle of the night, like wondering why your friend, you felt like she cut your conversation short on the phone. And you're thinking like, oh my gosh, I said the wrong thing, or I did the wrong thing, or she wasn't happy with my tone of voice, or she's thinking terrible things about me. I'm a terrible person. I just ruined our friendship. Instead, you could think like, oh, you know, I bet she had to go pick up a kid or I bet her boss was looking at her going, why are you on a personal call? Or I bet, you know, just the considering an alternate perspective is really valuable. And it really doesn't matter if the alternate perspective has a lot of credence to it. It's just the creative exercise of considering a different point of view that lessens the power of that tread you're stuck down in. Something else that can be really helpful depending on the situation is Think about what you would tell someone, uh, your best friend could be a person. Think about what you would tell your best friend if they were in the exact same situation you were right now. So if they were laying in bed overthinking the specific thing you're overthinking right now, if they told that to you, what would you tell them? We have so much more grace and compassion for for those in our lives, for really anyone who isn't us. And it also helps you see your own situation from a different perspective. And one that's really personal, one that someone you care about is hypothetically experiencing here. So if you can consider what you would tell them and then turn around and apply that same advice to you, it can really um, just help you unlock from that groove you're caught in. Talk about mixing metaphors. How do you like that? <laughs> I love it. Seriously, that... it. What would you tell your best friend? That has helped me so much in so many different situations. Like we just, we know the answer when it's for somebody else and we don't know it for us. So asking it in that way, I mean, it is, it's amazing. Like even with giant decisions, if you had a friend who was thinking, you know, should I go to grad school or not? Or, you know, am I, you know, is, should I move across the country or not? Or should I take this job or not? Or should I stay home or should I quit my job to stay home with my kids or not? Like, what would you tell her? And the the way you would talk to her is probably really different from the way you're talking to yourself. And 
you just kind of know in a different way when it's not about you. And so I, I really love that. Yeah. You have a totally different perspective because when we're overthinking, oftentimes we do feel trapped and it really like pops the lock and helps you get, get out of your own. uh, It helps you get off that treadmill. Yep. Yep. I love that. And I mean, really when we're talking about laying in bed at night, you know, I've mentioned this a little bit, but I just want to say it again. One of the things that's been really, really helpful for me lately is to speak really kindly to myself and to talk to myself like I would a kid or my husband or a friend and say, like, listen, Steph, I know that this is important to you. I know that you're worried about this, but you know what? This can't be solved tonight. There's nothing you can do about it right now. The best thing you can do is to go back to sleep. And so let's take this and let's set it aside and we can open it again in the morning. But for now, let's just go to bed. And like, I, it sounds silly, but I mean, sometimes I say that out loud to myself and just that process of like, you don't have to fix it and you don't have to get rid of it. Like you don't have to get over it. Um, and you don't have to forget about it. You just get to set it aside. But that, that reminder that you can't solve it tonight and the best thing you can do, the most productive thing you can do towards solving that problem, whatever it is, is actually just getting a good night's sleep. Exactly. And if that's not working, then get a book and read a chapter of that and then go to sleep worrying about your fictional characters' problems. Or get a business book that's just not boring necessarily, but just uninteresting enough to let you put it down and go to sleep dreaming about, I don't know, time management or sidewalks or jellyfish or something that's not your own life. Yes. That's... um. I am so glad you said that because um, for the longest time, and specifically when I started doing this, when I was feeling so anxious, I started watching something on my iPad to fall asleep, which I know you're not supposed to bring screens into bed, but usually I would watch it for a while and then I would kind of flip the screen so I could just hear the the audio, but I would find the most boring show I could find. And usually um, I find that any like British show is best, not the, not bake off because I mean, I'm too into it to, to go to sleep, but <laughs> Um, for a while, I found this one show that's not on Netflix anymore, but it's basically like a house hunter show. But the rules are different in the UK, I guess, because at the end of the show, without fail, they would, no one would pick a house. They would say, you know, I need to think about this a little bit more, but thank you for showing me these houses. Like there was no resolution. You just spent half an hour watching this show that had no point. And uh, everyone had just really beautiful soothing accents and there was really nice music and inevitably they would go visit like the knitting factory that happened to be in each <laughs> little town. I mean, it was really th- just the most uneventful show ever, but it was wonderful. And so anyway, it's not on Netflix anymore, but I will tell you that last night I fell asleep watching there's a, and you may have already heard of him, but there's some um, British man named Monty Don who's really into gardens and there he's, he's just this amazing gardener. And um, if anyone's in the UK, you're like, oh, I've heard of him. Uh, but he has a couple shows on Netflix where he walks you around gardens in Europe. And so I fell asleep last night looking at Italian gardens with a man named, not, man named uh, Monty Don. And that's what I fell asleep worrying about, which was really wonderful. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Um, and for our overthinkers who are listening, do you have just any any final words of encouragement? Yeah, this isn't something you're going to solve overnight. And it feels really hard if you feel like you're stuck in a perpetual cycle of overthinking to get out of it. And it may be hard right now, but it's so worth doing. And you absolutely can do this. You can do this. There's so many things you can do. Just pick something to get started. Start applying it in your life. You'll see the results. It'll feel really good. You'll want to do more. It does feel really hard about at the beginning, but it gets easier with time. It's worth it. Just embrace that spirit of experimentation. You've got nothing to lose. Also, you are not alone. You're not the only one, but other people have done this and are doing this now and you can too. I love that. And thank you so much for being here today. It is absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You guys, isn't Anne amazing? Seriously, she's our new best friend, right? Don't forget that if you ever want to find the links for anything we talk about in our Girls' Night episodes, you can always find those over in our show notes. Just head to girlsnightpodcast.com and there you'll find links for everything, including all of Anne's info so you can pick up her new book, listen to her podcast, and follow along with all the great stuff she's doing. All right, friends, that's it for today's episode, but we have so much good stuff ahead this season. And with that in mind, now is the perfect time to make sure you're subscribed. Subscribing to the show is the best way to make sure you never miss an episode. It won't send you an email or anything. It just makes sure your phone downloads the latest episode when a new one's released. 
And I did want to take a quick second to ask you guys a favor. If you enjoyed this episode, or if you've been a Girls' Night fan for a while now, would you take just two quick seconds to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes? Those reviews that help out our podcast so much, and it really would mean the world to me. So if you take two quick seconds to do that, I would be so grateful. Friends, thank you so much for joining me for Girls' Night, and I will see you next week.